1: I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Wednesday, March 8th. With us now, MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan, who has a new book called Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. His MSNBC show is Sunday nights at eight o'clock Eastern time. He's also on their streaming channel, Peacock, on Tuesdays. The Guardian describes Mehdi Hassan as a British-born Muslim of Indian descent anti-establishment, muckraker, and unabashed lefty with a bias toward democracy. We'll pick it up from there on some of his views and experiences and his advice on how to win your next political argument. Mehdi, thanks for coming on WNYC, and congratulations on the book.
0: Thanks so much, Brian. Lovely to be here.
1: Do you accept The Guardian's one-line description of you more or less as a starting point or want to add or change (laughs) anything right off the bat? uh,
0: There's no lies in there.
1: That's a good, uh, that's something of an endorsement. Want to tell everyone some more about how you got into political media? Some listeners know you from seeing you on MSNBC, many other listeners don't. Um, Your line of work, did you do it in the UK before coming here, or what was your path into this?
0: Yeah, I've been a journalist now for 23 years. Um, I graduated from university in 2000 in the UK, and I basically. I went to Oxford University, Brian, with a bunch of people who all went off in my degree course to be in finance, to work in management consultancy, Mm. Um, the city, uh, business, banking. And I thought, that's not really for me. But what is for me? I don't really have any skills. Um, I have a big mouth. Uh, Can I do something with a big mouth? And uh, my sister was already working in the media and I thought... Could the media be the path for me, which wasn't an obvious path for someone who's of Indian descent? Most of my uh, peers are doing kind of medicine, dentistry. Anyone who has um, Asian or Indian or Pakistani parents knows that they don't really regard media as a proper career. Mm. Um, But I took a chance on it and I went into TV in 2000 and I became a pundit, columnist, journalist, uh, a public figure in, what was it, 2009 now? Moved to the US in 2015. I've been doing interviews on tv for over a decade now and i talk about a lot of those interviews in the book
1: indeed and you know with your feet in both of those worlds that is the us and the uk we've talked before on this show about how it seems like the bbc and other british interviewers are generally more adversarial in their tone with government officials they interview than american interviewers it sounds like you agree with that comparison why do you think that is
0: a great question. It's a question I've been asked a lot over the last decade that I've been here, and it is the case. There's no no debate about the fact that British TV journalism is more adversarial. Uh, I think it's a cultural thing, partly. Um, I think um, we in the UK are just more willing to be in your face, uh, be a bit ruder, what might be considered ruder in America, but isn't considered rude uh, in the UK. I do think the American media um, treats, especially the presidency, Uh, with a reverence that we don't treat the prime ministership in the UK, maybe because the head of government is also the head of state here. You have journalists stand up when the president comes in the room. That would Mm. never happen in the UK. Mm. But it's not just the president, right, Brian? It goes across the Senate, Congress, state and local media. Um, I can't pinpoint the exact cause uh, of the lack of deference uh, in the UK versus here. But I do think we need to get less deferential here in the United States, especially when confronted with a political and media moment in which So many of our public figures are just serial fabricators and gaslighters um, and peddlers of BS. And I think we need to have TV interviewers who are willing to much more strongly push back. And I say in the book, you've got to be able to ask the follow up question. You've got to be willing not to budge and move on when confronted with a falsehood.
1: Right. Even if you don't get to those other topics that you wanted exactly. to get to. Um, but, you know, increasingly, U.S. politicians avoid actual media, media interviews that, you know, might even be journalistically conventional yes. in the U.S. context, but that do include real questions. Never mind go on with people who they think will be more confrontational or adversarial. Do, do U.K. politicians sit more readily for those kinds of interviews? And if so, why if they know they're going to come in for it?
0: Well, a couple of things. I think they do. I think they—they, you know—we don't have the Fox Newsmax OANN equivalent in the UK yet. There's a kind of pretender Mm. channel called GB News, but British TV news is much more heavily regulated uh, for impartiality purposes than US television, and therefore there aren't as many safe spaces for politicians, especially politicians on the right, to retreat into as there are here in the US. If you're a Republican politician, you never have to step foot on NBC or CNN or ABC or any Sunday morning show. You can just do Fox, OAN, Newsmax and a few other podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. I think that, that, uh, that's made it much harder for people like yourself and myself and others in our business to get people to sit down with us. Because as you say, why do an adversarial interview when you can have softballs from a friendlier host? So it's it's harder, but it's not impossible. You know, I talk in the book about people I've had on my show who I've challenged uh, whether it was in my Al Jazeera English days, like General Michael Flynn and Eric Prince, or in my MSNBC days, like Congressman Dan Crenshaw or John Bolton. Uh, all people who have been willing to sit down with me, to be fair to them, and take some tough, combative questions mm-hmm. from me. So it's hard. It's getting harder. But it's not impossible. You know, there's still enough opportunities on the Sunday morning shows, on prime time, to really kind of hold people's feet to the fire. or if Even if it's not a grilling, Brian. Just as I say, ask the follow-up questions. Don't mm-hmm. just move on from topic to topic and allow someone to just say complete, plain, untruth and get away with it.
1: Listeners, your questions for MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan, author now of Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading and Public Speaking, 212-433-WNYC or tweet at Brian Lehrer. You can ask him about political media, Uh, some of the issues that he covers that we're obliquely touching on here just by talking about interviewing, um, or get some tips for yourself to win your next political argument, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, or tweet at Brian Lehrer. Uh, Would you like to tell us a story from the book about a political debate or interview. And, and those are different, but they overlap with with someone. You just mentioned some examples and a few basic techniques you deployed. So one uh, story I tell in the book, I have a chapter in
0: the book, Brian, that was also extracted in The Atlantic that your listeners can read, uh, but I'd much rather they buy the book and read it. But there's a chapter on uh, what's called gish galloping, which in debate circles is this idea that you overwhelm your opponent with nonsense, with a with a with a blizzard of lies, untruths, falsehoods, cherry pick statistics, out of context quotes, uh, you deflect, you distract, you disorient, and the other person isn't able to respond because you've just dumped so much nonsense on them. And it's a style that Donald Trump has obviously uh, become an expert in, whether wittingly or unwittingly. Uh, you know, you're you're trying to rebut lie number four, and he's on lie number nineteen. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I talk sentence. in the book about. Yeah, indeed. And how how do you push back against that? It's not easy. And I talk about a three-step process, which I deployed in an interview, which again, your listeners can, if you look at my Twitter feed, at Mehdi R. and it's the pinned tweet. I did a viral interview, 10 million views, with a Trump advisor called Steve Rogers, uh, sadly not Captain America, back in uh, 2018, (laughs) where he kind of was doing the strategy of just complete nonsense, hoping I'd move on. And I did the three-step maneuver that I advise people to do when confronted with a gish galloper, with a BS merchant, which is number one, pick your battles. can't push back against everything. So I asked him about Trump's claim at the time that six new steel mills had just been announced. They hadn't been. It was a complete lie. And I asked him to identify the mills. And he couldn't do it. And I just refused to move on to any other topic. I didn't budge. Number two, don't budge. He kept saying, why don't you just move on? I said, no, I'm not going to move on. (laughs) Answer the question. Where are Mm -hmm. these six new steel mills? I concede that it was a lie. And then the third point is call it out. I said to him, what you're doing here is You are lying, you're supporting a lie, and you want us not to notice. You've got to call out the strategy too. So I tell people three-part strategy when confronted with someone like Trump. Pick your battle, focus on one thing you want to rebut. Don't budge, don't move on. Don't give them that, you know, get out. And number three, call it out. Explain to an audience what is going on here. You are being gaslit. The whole point of this exercise is to disorient you. Let's focus.
1: You know, since the subtitle of the book includes the art of debating and persuading. The question occurred to me that sometimes people say we're past the age of persuasion in American politics, right? It's the age of mobilizing your base. There are no swing voters to persuade it anymore, at least not enough to decide most important elections. How much do you agree or disagree with that?
0: So I, I half agree and half disagree. Again, we're it's clearly we're in an age where persuasion has become much more difficult, in an age of social media, misinformation, fake news, uh, partisan polarization, people stuck in their silos and bubbles, hard to get to. It's very, very difficult to persuade kind of the quote unquote independent voters. But again, it's not impossible. I haven't given up. If I'd given up, Brian, I wouldn't have written the book. I wouldn't host a show on MSNBC. I'd go off and do something else. I'd go be an accountant. Not that there's anything wrong with being an accountant, but I would be doing what I'm doing now. I do do persuasion on my show and online because I do believe people can still be persuaded. And I cite in the book a study from 2017 in the journal Political Behaviour, which found that, quote, by and large, citizens heed factual information, even when such information challenges their ideological commitments. Uh, The Pew polling has shown that people still are, I mean, smaller numbers of them, but they still are willing to be won over by facts if presented in the right way. The point of the book is to say You can convince people. You can persuade people with logic, with evidence, with facts. But you've got to present it in the right way. You've got to use emotional appeals. You've got to find a way to connect with them. You've got to do storytelling.
1: And you do believe in not just making the best positive case for your point of view and doing it by good storytelling and appealing emotionally as well as intellectually, but also attacking your opponent. But we also abhor people like Donald Trump for engaging in the politics of personal destruction. I'll spare, you know, any examples, uh, De Sanctimonious. But it's low road and it also gets off the substance. So when do you use anything like this yourself?
0: So I say in the book that you're taught to play the ball and not the man, because as you say, we're supposed to focus on substance, on the argument, not the arguer. I say in the real world, it doesn't work like that. You have to be able... To challenge the credibility of the arguer if it is relevant i'm not telling you I'm not telling people to go out and be trump style you know call people ugly uh, or name call or engage in racist behavior but I am saying that sometimes you must challenge your opponent not just the opponent's argument and I give examples of that for example the abusive ad hominem which we identify with Trump saying someone is a liar I believe that's relevant if you are addressing a crowd and your opponent or your interviewee is a known liar. I do think you should tell the audience, by the way, that person has a track record of deceiving you. You should know that. I also talk about the circumstantial ad hominem. If somebody is funded by the fossil fuel industry and say, well, climate change is a myth, I believe it's incumbent upon you to highlight again to your audience, that person has a conflict of interest. He's funded by people who say that. And the third one I refer to is the tu quay, the you 2 the hypocrisy argument. If somebody is saying, well, you know what? Abortion is an absolute evil sin, immoral. There's no circumstance in which it should be legal. Turns out they paid for an abortion. Uh, mm. And it's relevant, I believe. Now you might say, well, that doesn't affect the argument over whether abortion is right or wrong. I agree. It doesn't affect the substance, but it does make us think again about the person pushing the argument and whether they deserve extra scrutiny, whether they are pushing a position which they themselves can't adhere to or live by. So I do think it is relevant to talk about the credibility, the personality, the expertise, the qualifications of your opponent. Look at the COVID pandemic, Brian. A lot of people just running their mouth about COVID. And you're like, well, what is your expertise here? On what basis are
1: you making these sweeping conclusions? Just inject bleach. It'll clean our systems out. Donald Des-
0: noted epidemiologist.
1: And Anne in Monmouth County. You're on WNYC. Hello, Anne.
2: Oh, hi. I emptied a storage room recently of old unpacked boxes, and they were wrapped in newspapers from about anywhere from 22 to 25 years ago. And these were like Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And I can't help but notice how the articles were written confidently by journalists, columnists, editorials, and how wrong they got their data, facts and reality looking back in hindsight. And Hello?
1: Yeah, we're listening. It's a good story. Uh, you have our attention. And I'm I'm
2: I'm really wondering why schools and classrooms don't have a lesson plan where they Need to go back in time and see whether the forecasts were really right or wrong <laughs> and accurate, because I can't begin to tell you how not just the headline stories, but local real estate stories, local politics, international news, economics, have gotten yeah. have were wrong.
1: Hundred scorecard, Maddie.
0: No, hundred percent, and I talk about it in the book of the importance of showing receipts. Uh, of having your kind of facts and evidence. And one of the things we really need to do in some of these debates is to remind people uh, of what's happened in the past. It frustrates me a, a great deal that the people who got the financial crisis wrong, got the Iraq war wrong, got COVID wrong, got Donald Trump wrong, continue to fail upwards in some parts of our political and media spheres. Uh, we kind of reset the clock and move on. One thing about living in America I've noticed, uh, and I've been in nearly a decade, is you know, we, we, we kind of enjoy a self-imposed collective amnesia. We do like to forget things that are inconvenient or awkward and kind of restart the clock every day. We're like, oh, well, that's fine. It doesn't matter what you said yesterday. Let's talk about today. And I, as a journalist, one of the things I do, and I talk about it in the book with people like John Bolton and others, is to say, hold on, you were the person who said X, Y, Z. Can you explain yourself? And people don't like that. People don't like when you bring up quotes from back in the day. Um, and I and I do that because, yes, it is about accountability. And the media needs to be accountable, too, with one of the reasons there is declining trust in our industry is because we haven't been accountable for our failures, our mistakes, our incorrect predictions. So one of the good things about social media, there are many bad things about social media, is that people have been able to use social media to hold the mainstream media to account. And I think that's mm. a good thing.
1: Mm. One more. Debbie on Staten Island. You're on WNYC with Mehdi Hassan. Hi, Debbie.
2: Hello, um I, I have a quick question. I love the show. I love the topic. I totally want to read the book. Sorry, I haven't read it yet, but I will now because i'm I feel con- uh, 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 I feel um, com- comfortable to ask you. Do you know, and it's a big question, but it's International Women's Day. And I just wanted to put a shout out to but I feel British women have a little bit of a confidence and a courage and they're not so insecure when it comes to um being on the news or being um in on the radio like right now i'm really nervous but do you uh the question is do you see any difference between british women and american women thank you I love you bye
0: <laughs> i don't know how to answer that without getting into all sorts of minefields am i really qualified to answer that question um i am uh, uh <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer that question other than to say that I'm glad to see uh, both British women and American women actually uh, breaking down a lot of barriers in my industry, in the news industry, and in the area that I cover in politics. I think it is very, very sad. And the source of shame for the United States that is one of the few countries in the world, Western countries, democratic countries, that is yet to elect uh, a woman leader. I think that's definitely a problem. That's something we should reflect on on this day of all days. Uh, but I'm not sure I do see it necessarily in terms of media differences. I work at MSNBC where some of the top primetime hosts, some of our uh, highest profile and most outspoken hosts on primetime, whether it's Rachel Maddow, um, Alex Wagner, uh, Joy Reid, Stephanie Rule, are all uh, very, very well-spoken, well-qualified women who I look to for guidance. uh, And I've learned a lot from.
1: Mehdi, last question. The book title is framed as an advice book, Win Every Argument. So how much does the book apply to people in their personal lives, you know, debating their red state uncle at Thanksgiving or whatever it is?
0: So uh, let, uh, let me let me put it like this in your person, it, it is very much a book for your personal life in multiple aspects. I talk about, you know, you're going for a job interview. There are tips in here. You want to negotiate a pay rise. There are tips in here. You're sitting with your MAGA uncle at the Thanksgiving table talking about microchips and vaccines. There are tips in here on how to connect and how to kind of persuade Uh, One thing it doesn't do, which is a question I've been asked most since it came out last week, which is, will it help me win an argument with my spouse? Uh, My answer to that is you should probably avoid arguments with your spouse. That's probably the best bet. So don't use it on your partner, but do use it everywhere else.
1: Mehdi Hassan is on MSNBC Sunday nights at eight. Win Every Argument is the book, The Art of Debating, Persuading and Public Speaking. Thanks for sharing it with us.
0: Thank you. Thank you.